This practice is not something that we're used to because there is so much striving and so much pressure from the world to succeed in tangible ways and to show the proof of your success. It's very important that we not cling to a tradition and we don't look for an identity in our practice, but use the guidance of the Buddha to wake up to the truth right in the present moment. And here, taking the road in, one who looks outside dreams, and one who looks within awakens. So right there, we know where to point and direct ourselves. And we needn't try to prove anything to the world or to ourselves. And this work is not done by over-striving, nor is it done by laziness. It's done by establishing a practice, directing oneself on a path that one trusts, that one has seen others gain results from, and one has seen oneself gain some result from. Just sitting down and meditating in, in a peaceful space like this for a few minutes, one can feel the, the power of this energetic presence, of this depth of presence, the ability to be silent in the middle of such a noisy world is, is a tremendous statement and a powerful footprint. Now the Buddha had a footprint that all beings could set their feet in. So vast was his footprint. Like the footprint of an elephant, every animal could fit its footprint in the footprint of an elephant. The Buddha's footprint encompasses the effort of every being that tries to emulate him and his ability to quiet his mind, to investigate his mind, to develop it, brighten it, purify it, and fully awaken if we have some kind of condition, a physical condition, more likely a mental condition, the Buddha also provides a way of working with the body, contemplation of the body, mindfulness of the body. And this is something that we can use in the beginning or at any point when we feel that we cannot work directly with the mind. The mind working with the mind is something to do later on. So start with working with the body. And in working with the body, whatever illness we have, illnesses come from many factors, and the mind has the ability to heal illness. But it's not for the sake of having a body that's perfect. Because even a body that is very sick and feeble can 
be the vehicle in which one practices and gains full awakening. It's not only healthy people that get enlightened. In fact, most of the beings that I've been with who are seasoned practitioners on their deathbeds seem to do very, very well. But they're dying. We mustn't make the mistake of thinking that we have to have our bodies in a particular shape to succeed on this path. That would be foolish and ignorant. In the same way, we should not be so deluded as to think that old age is an obstacle to practicing or that not being able to sit on the floor, the fact that now you can only sit in a chair, probably 50% of you people in the chairs could be sitting on the floor, and 50% of those of you on the floor should be in a chair. (laughs) (laughs) These things are irrelevant. What's really relevant is what is the state of the mind? And in fact, death, a dying process, is considered a a very fertile moment for letting go of everything. But letting go with gladness. If we have lived well, if we have lived wisely, if we have lived with gratitude. And sometimes the very obstacle that presents itself and sets us back and holds us back is the fear of letting go. And then suddenly we have some urgency arises and we can let go so easily. Like a parent who has to rescue a child or somebody jumps into a river to rescue someone who's drowning and doesn't even think, I could die. They just do it because of a great compassion, because of a very pure moment of seeing the need and responding skillfully, hopefully skillfully. If you can't swim, it might not be so skillful. The intention is very, very noble, isn't it? But when we're going along in mediocre conditions and there's no urgency, then... We, we think we can't let go very much. And we end up not letting go, hanging on tighter sometimes. So the bottom line is, when situations feel very dark, or we feel oppressed, or we feel not up to scratch, we need to look at our opinion rather than the conditions external or even the conditions we're believing exist within the mind. Look at our judgment. Look at the opinion. Look at what kind of looking there is. How are we seeing? Are we seeing or are we just blind? Are we seeing or are we just following belief? Somebody told us that we're schizophrenic or incompetent. Other people diagnose us. The world diagnoses us all the time. And we believe that. About a year and a half ago, a woman came to the monastery. She wanted to train with us. 
And she accused me of ageism because she was in her 70s and I didn't think it was such a good option for her to live at our hermitage. And she wasn't willing to look at the real reasons why it might not be suitable. Once somebody believes their opinion so strongly, you can't point the way. So if we believe our opinions so strongly, we can't see the way, even though we have the potential to develop it, cultivate it, and realize the way. It's really important, whatever you're doing, is just to notice the state of the mind. And if we can't give up the world, we can at least give up our opinions. And we can try to give up the opinions of the world about us, about who we think we are, or what we think the world thinks we are. It gets very complicated. But look in the mirror of your own mind. This mind, if we purify it, clarify it, then we'll start to see the conditions, the conditioning, the trauma, the fear, all the obstacles. But we will also start to see the unconditioned, the non-fear, the non-greed, the non-holding on, the ability to let go. Because that exists in us. And that we can grow. Just like we know that there's suffering in the world, but we also know that there's a lot of non-suffering. There's a lot of people that have great happiness in spite of incredible trials and tragedy. They just manage to be extremely positive and strong, fearless, courageous, and we admire those people. So these are things that we can also develop in ourselves, these qualities. That's how we can bring the truth out of what we think is an obstacle. The obstacle is our thought, our opinion. This is an obstacle. When you feel afraid, if you're a parent and you feel very nervous about something happening to your child, you won't be able to parent very well because you'll be mistrusting of conditions. But if you parent well and direct your child well, then they will have the gift or the ability to make good choices. And then we have to let go. They choose and we have to let go what happens. This is trusting in the law of kamma or karma. And if we develop in ourselves virtue, the meditation practice, and the ability to make wise choices based on those qualities, those developments within us, then we won't have cause for regret. Even if things don't work out the way we want them to, it doesn't matter. We may be purifying some ancient karma, some misdeed, or poor choice that we made 
lifetimes ago. And it arises now. And we make peace with that. We pay off our debts and not try to analyze that when the house is on fire, don't try to examine where it's coming from. Just get out. I'll never forget when the firemen came in to rescue your house from burning down. You said, can you take off your boots? They had these big old dirty boots and their clean carpets. That place is on fire. (laughs) This house, this body-mind, this house that we're living in, is on fire. It's on fire. And the Buddha talks about this at length. It's on fire with the fires of greed, the fires of hatred, and the fires of delusion. And being able to put out those fires comes from being able to stop the mind from feeding the flames, taking away the food that causes that passion for things, for experiences, even for existence itself, the desire to live, live forever, live long, live, and look beautiful too, look great. Nature has the capacity to awaken us if we just make peace with the process of getting old. So what's wrong with that? And then the world says, oh, you should dye your hair. But isn't white hair nice? What's wrong with it? Why do we want to look what we think is young? Something is not quite right. Why do we have to fix our teeth and make our smiles as white as they were when we were in our 20s. Why is the physical appearance propped up when it should be allowed to sag a little and fade, fading away? We want to really experience life authentically and not dress it up all the time. There's a teaching in that. And it's the the teaching of arising and passing away. It's the most fundamental teaching, and it carries the three characteristics in it. The impermanence of all things. It's almost like we, we want to wipe out that truth and pretend that it doesn't exist. So how can we wake up if we keep doing that? If we keep dressing up the body and presenting it in a way that is disingenuous. It's not authentic. So we want the truth in one way and another way in daily life. We're actually going in a very different direction. I don't mean to put down looking neat and sweet, but it's the body beautiful type of cultural pressure. Because, you know, the world belongs to the young. Who cares? They can have it. (laughs) It's rubbish. You want it so bad, it's such a mess. And we get caught up in having to make money to sustain this mess. Instead of living more simply and living in a way that's really based on 
sila samadhi panya, following the Buddha's footprints. It's a turning away from the world. You can't have both. You can't run after the world and get the Dhamma, deeply get the Dhamma. That's why many friends who I've seen pass, seasoned practitioners, they could die so beautifully because they'd let go so much. They weren't so caught up with the world. And you watch people in that kind of state of mind die, it's just exhilarating. Their family members are coming and lining up to see them wailing and weeping and crying. Their sick relative is illuminated, luminous, radiant, and acting like a a therapist. Mom, I'll be fine. Don't worry. I've seen it. It's quite paradoxical. They're absolutely at peace, and, and the rest of the world is coming and going from their sick room, shaking, and why does this have to happen? But this is the dukkha of life, the impermanence, the dukkha, and the emptiness of these forms. Where is the person in these forms that we inhabit and invest so much energy into believing in this person, this personality, in this solid being that is going to live forever? Wouldn't it be great to go to sleep every night and contemplate the world not having you, in quote marks, in it, that you don't exist, just lying down and saying farewell to the world. Not here. Not here. Then. Gone. Then what? Then you begin to contemplate what you've done in your life, noticing the feeling of fear or the feeling of joy. To rejoice at the moment of death is to contemplate virtue. Think about all the good things you've done in your life. Every day when you get home, you finish your work, you've eaten, said goodnight to everyone, you get ready for bed, you lie down, and you just reflect how you lived for one day. What kind of day was it? Where was your mind all day long? What did the mind do or not do? What did the mind perceive or not perceive? What did the mind learn or not learn? What did we understand or not understand? And then with those kind of contemplations, you gently rest and drift away into sleep. Then you wake up. And how do you feel when you wake up? Oh no, not again. (laughs) Or another day to try to practice well, to live well, to make wise choices, to be kind, to forgive. I want to say a few words about forgiveness. The contemplation of the body is um, so important because if all our, or much of our obstacles come from what is held in the body, then we really need to 
investigate deeply and notice deeply held energies and traumas in the body and work in those ways to release that. Because it's almost like we're we're carrying lifetimes of dukkha, of suffering, curled, rolled up, stuffed in pockets and spaces inside our organs and inside our cellular memory, inside our blood. Even the chemical composition of the blood can be affected by impacts that we've received in our lives. So we need to do some really deep body work to be able to release all that dukkha and purify on a neuroscientific or psychic spiritual level. All that comes from knowing the body, living in the body, incorporating into the body, and allowing the body to be free of this dukkha. Otherwise, our mental habits and our habit patterns of holding energy are distracted. Even the way we walk, just the way we, you can see from your walking meditation, how relaxed is it? How comfortable do you feel touching your feet to the earth instead of daydreaming, instead of letting the mind wander? So much of our time is spent and so much of our life is spent distracted and jumping from project to project, activity to activity, distracted and busy so that we don't experience ourselves and our life history in this moment, the way it's held in the body, the unhappiness, the disappointment, the despair, the self-criticism. How many opinions or voices do we play over and over again, like recordings? I'm no good, I can't do this, I failed. If not those particular words, nuances of that. I'm not forgiving ourselves, I made a mistake. And if it isn't inward to this non-existing person, which we keep recreating and carrying around, and it gets bigger and bigger, the more fear and the more anger, the more repression and the more lack of forgiveness there is, the greater the burden that we carry. And if it's self-inflicted to this being that is not real, then this is great delusion. But then if it's other-inflicted, it's even a bigger burden. How many ghosts do we carry around? And how many layers of ghosts are there under our skin, in the body? You're looking outward all the time at what technique and what convention and how much progress you've made, etc., etc., and how to let go of present moment fear. But behind that fear is a mountain of fear, is an ocean of anger. could be generational. We've just picked up our parents' dukkha and identified with it. 
or someone else's, or generations do come. Whatever cause there is out there, we pick it up and we try to run with it and we stumble and fall because the answers don't lie in carrying these burdens. But in putting them down and forgiving by opening to the pain physical, the pain physical and psychophysical. These are physically experienced, but they're also spiritual dukkhas locked in our bones, in our very being. And this we have to learn how to open to. And the meditation practice gives us an opportunity to do that. Strong absorption practices give us a refreshment and a rest from the burden of life. But it's not freedom, because we can get addicted to that. And we can require that kind of refreshment just the way other people require drugs. We have to also let go of that kind of joy until we reach a place of equanimity. That's why it's called the middle way. It's in the middle. It's being able to inhabit the space within the body completely and fully. Only then can we die skillfully and let it go joyfully. Only then. Joyfully, not like, oh, thank goodness. I don't mean that. I mean just with the sense of gratitude, a sense of wonder about this journey, and an eagerness to fulfill it, the, the joy of practice, of growing in the Dhamma, of knowing the truth, and then being able to bear difficult conditions with greater and greater equanimity. So let the hair get white, let the body get bent. It doesn't mean that we don't try to take medicine for sickness, but a real medicine for inner well-being, in spite of the body's dysfunctionality, lies in the purity of our own mind. And the purification of mind can heal and dispel the difficult conditions that the body brings forth and give us the forbearance to be champion in this path, to be victorious. That's the greatest victory. Everything else of the world is cheap by comparison. If you have a precious jewel and you put it in the cupboard, it doesn't reveal itself. It cannot be seen. But if you have a precious jewel and you bring it in front of your eyes so you can see it and everyone else can see it, then this is wonderful. It's a precious jewel of the Dhamma. We bring it forth within our own body, mind. In this life is possible. We have to sit up and take note. If this is really worth developing and 
worth shining up, brightening. We can't shine up anybody else's mind, but we can do our own. No matter what kind of diagnosis you've got, we can die to that. And then it's only agnosis. It's not agony. It's putting the agony away. It's pulling things apart, seeing them for what they really are. Like the letters of the alphabet, until you put them together, they make no sense. And so these labels that we carry around in our little baggage of dukkha, throw them out. The world is all caught up in labels. And there comes the discrimination, but it isn't the discernment. It's not discriminating mind. It's a hatred. That kind of mind that is distorted, has distorted perception, prejudice, bias, hateful mind. But if we pull all our identities apart, it's just emptiness. These are just ghosts, silhouettes of reality. They bear no facsimile of reality. They're poor imitations. We must look at each other with great loving-kindness, compassion, gladness, and equanimity. Even the people with great power, we can have compassion for them when they act with ignorance and not depend upon and expect that other people have to change and be a certain way for life to be good and true and right. We really cannot change the world. We can't change anyone else. But the good news is that we can change ourselves. I remember on the airplane years ago they used to collect change for the good. If you had spare change and you donated, there was a little bag that said change for the good. I never had any change. (laughs) Don't carry money. The world is full of dazzling and beautiful things. Don't get mesmerized by beauty, even in your practice. If you're doing walking meditation and you get distracted by the vastness of the sky or the beautiful shapes of the trees, just stop and look at that and let your mind become concentrated around the sign of the beautiful. But don't become attached to it. Just let it help your mind grow quiet and then turn inward. But if you're doing walking meditation, that will stop you in your tracks. So then you stand for a few minutes. Don't let the mind get lost in trying to do two things at the same time well. It's not a good plan. You do one thing at a time. This practice is best done without multitasking. It's the opposite. It's going to oneness, going to single-pointedness. Trying to take all the faculties and converge 
our mental ability and energy in one direction only so that our attention can be sustained on one point more and more skillfully for longer and longer periods of time until the awareness we develop our awareness and our attention we learn how to sustain it and pacify the mind and still it more and more and more until the whole train passes until the whole show disappears then there's nothing left this is a moment of the cessation it's when the mind can really stop in that stopping there is a complete waking up waking up for a moment eventually hopefully we can sustain the place of awakening the point of awakening it's not a place it's just what it is a turning away from any movement at all this is why the silence is so precious so make more space for silence in your life and use this practice to do that keep your feet inside the buddha's footprint then you know you'll be safe you can call yourself anything you want don't try to be anything just be awake